For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So she practiced in Pittsburgh, my hometown, with um, Shohaku Okamura and Kyoki Roberts and did retreats with Reb Anderson. Uh, uh, Deborah also has a lot of connections with Chicago. She went to school at Northwestern and worked as a nurse for many years um, here and elsewhere. Um, uh, she's um, now, uh, also she has three grandchildren, which is wonderful grandmotherly mind here and um she's also now currently on the uh, ancient dragon boards uh uh sangha care committee uh, she also practices at the berkeley zen center and um berkeley zen center at but alan sanaki by the way will be speaking here in march and april um i first met um deborah in 2007, the first year I lived in Chicago, we were both on in China on a tour of uh, Buddhist sites in northern China with Andy Ferguson, including uh, Zhao Zhou's temple and Linji's temple. And, and um, anyway, uh, uh, so I'm very happy to have uh, Deborah here, and I'll, I'll mute myself so you won't hear my, my puppy in the background. So, hi, can everyone hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, hi. I'm glad to be on Zoom with you. This is a new adventure for me, uh, as this is my first Dharma talk, and I've been practicing over close to 30 years, I believe, if I add it all up. Well, you know where I live, and um, I'm also, besides being in California, I just wanted to support that I do have a small residence in Pittsburgh, and I am kind of by city at this point, which keeps life very interesting. So I wanted to, um, I asked uh, Tygen if I could make a Dharma talk. I've never done one and I felt I should try in my life. So he kindly allowed me and that's why you're listening to me this evening. And I used uh, this question to kind of be the guide to my Dharma talk, which is keeping practice alive with a question mark. And as I speak, we can maybe explore why I chose that topic. You can look at it for yourself as well as I have for my own practice. I came upon this topic because I thought about my many years of Zen practice, and I felt those words best expressed what I've been experiencing as a Zen practitioner, especially in the past 10 years. Like all of you, I have faced many challenges, many life challenges, and um, it is always interesting to keep practicing Zen as well having the effort for consistent practice. It's one thing to kind of, you know, do it maybe once or twice a week and maybe once, you know, every two months go to a a session or something, but we are guided to almost practice every day. So how does one keep one's practice alive? This question really came alive for me due to some personal experiences. My husband became ill with a brain tumor in around 2008. And as I count the years, it's about 14 years ago when I went to write this talk. Obviously, this was a, uh, it's a terminal tumor. 
And um, it was a big challenge for me, for him, obviously, as well as for our family of three adult children. We kind of lived with him. I call it dying for four years. He finally died in the fall of 2012. And then all of us were faced, each one of us, the four of us were faced with picking up our lives. And I especially was faced with the reality that I had lost this uh, partner relationship and all my children were launching. So in a way, a lot of my uh, meaning or order in life was really being taken away. And I just wrote kind of, um, I wrote down this, you know, it was a massive challenge. Um, I felt very unstable. And, and I also was trying to support my children who are mourning him, but also, you know, go entering a very important part of their lives, which was to have a stable time as they launched. So it was a big, 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 big uh, opportunity to practice. What came up for me was I really didn't know anything. Um, At this time, a sangha I had been involved with, which was very important to me, closed because the lead teacher became very ill. So I lost not only, you know, like the home ground, but I also lost the practice ground. And not knowing, I kind of welcomed it finally. I I was frightened by it, but I kind of welcomed it and said, you know, you really don't know. And you might as well just go for it each day the best you can. And that's what I tried to do. And just to deal with the human side, you know, um, I was in a, all of us were grieving. There was a lot of anxiety and uncertainty for everyone. But we all got through it. And the question I had was, what do you do now? So what did I do? Well, the one, you know, ground I had was my Zen practice. At this time, it meant kind of practicing on my own, whatever that meant. Um, And I tried to do that. And because of like these states of anxiety and unease, I had to turn to walking meditation a lot. I called it walking meditation. Um, The physicality of these states, I couldn't, I would sit on a cushion, you know, I might go to a session and sit for, you know, six hours. I can do that with other people. But privately, I had a lot of time sitting, trouble sitting down on my own cushion. So I ended up hiking with my Labrador retriever, Finn, and I found all these wild trails all over Western Pennsylvania in the wonderful forest that exists there. And I kind of made it that my practice because I had to meet my practice where I was and and that's where it was. I had to move. I needed to move. But I found nature, you know, really rich, whether it was winter and the snow was down and there was slush or gray skies or it was sunny and there were flowers blooming or it was the hot summer and you're kind of sweating as you're walking and you have, you know, ticks and uh, mosquitoes after you. So kind of, I did this forest practice, I called it for about three years. And over time, I, you know, life got more settled, children got married and engaged and set up careers. And um, I kind of realized, you know, well, you got to figure, you know, I was figuring things out. I won't go into all that, but um, I still feel grief was my teaching friend. I, I really feel even though it's a hard uh, state to kind of welcome, I tried to welcome it because it it really was like, you know, kind of burned everything away. That's right. If I look back in hindsight, it kind of burned everything away. So one of the great uh, gifts of this time was my son decided to go to South Korea to teach English as a second language. And he was there about uh, six months and he, he emailed me and he said, mom, would you be interested in going down to um, Cambodia 
and we'll go to uh, check out Angkor Wat and um, we'll check out Vietnam. And then you can come and visit me for a few days in South Korea where he was living. And I, of course, said yes, because who would expect your 25-year-old son to ever invite you to do something like that? You would think he'd invite some beautiful young woman to go with him. But I was the young woman. So that was fun. But what happened on that trip was as I got to visit these amazing locations, I started to kind of look for, you know, I called it a Buddhist sensibility. I started to look at each of these countries, uh, the small experiences I had. You know, I'd I'd look for temples, I'd look for museums. um, And then I started looking at the people. and, And I discovered that, you know, these are foundational countries regarding Buddhism. And the people were especially touching for me because they were very kind, they were gentle, they listened carefully, and they were very patient with an American like me. And so I just wanted to reference one place I went that I found, again, at this time, very meaningful, which was Angkor Wat. Angkor Wat was created around 1200 AD, and it is considered the largest, largest Buddhist temple in the world. It covers quite a lot of property, but the thing that's amazing about it is it's made out of these huge rocks, huge. I'm talking, you know, 20 feet by 20 feet. And it's like a wonder of the world because no one really knows how, you know, they only had elephants, right? How do they get these rocks? And there are over 70 or eight to a hundred structures in this area that extend out like 40 miles, 50 miles. And this was a walking culture. So, you know, it, it is, it was very inspiring to me to be in that environment. So after a couple, uh, I think almost two years later, I also decided to go visit some more countries. And I decided to visit China, which I had seen with Taigan a little, Tibet, Nepal, and Bhutan. And I then kind of went with another another sensibility, which was, you know, what's going on with this practice called Buddhism in these countries? And I realized, especially Tibet, that, it, you know, it was a big experience for me. Um, and I'll talk about one of them. So I, we went, I went to Tibet, I landed in Lhasa, and it, and it turned out the next day was Buddha's birthday, which in Tibet at that time was May 22nd. I know we have a different date in our country. And we were going to visit this central Tibetan Buddhist temple, which is called Jokang. It's quite famous. If you know anything about um, Tibet, it's where the Dalai Lama took many of his initiations. And it's considered a very holy and you know holy place for them. We actually walked there from our hotel. And as I'm walking, I'm watching all these people coming in, you know, you know, dressed, fully dressed in many layers of clothing carrying food, carrying, you know, having children with them, um, families, walking toward this temple. And um, when I got near the temple, people were doing full prostrations. They were doing full prostrations in the street as they tried to enter the temple grounds. There was like an inner courtyard where they were doing full prostrations. And um, also at this time, I, I could hear it often. It was near my hotel. The Chinese military would run through the streets, um, chanting military slogans in Chinese. So if you can imagine, you have this very kind of sacred, reverential energy going on. And the contrast with this, um, you know, kind of strict militaristic regime. 
you know, I, I became speechless during those days there. Um, I kind of was just trying to absorb it. Uh, I was so struck by their devotion. I realized that they were probably, you know, they they could be identified by the Chinese. This is in 2018 that I was there again. And um, it, obviously it's much worse today, but, um, you know, you realize these people are kind of practicing at the risk of their lives. Or if not that, they know that their culture is going to end, that their ability to do these practice publicly and perhaps in their small villages, you know, may end. So I just wanted to say that that experience caused me to really look at my practice. I had been um, kind of, you know, as I mentioned, struggling with it and um, not as regular. But when I saw these people, it made me really take a, you know, pause and really do a deep look. And obviously, it, it you know, positively, it, it really deepened my commitment to Zen practice. And the other thing I got aware of, and it could have been because I, um, I just really felt that these people came from a place of bodhicitta. You know, it's sort of a non-Zen word, but um, it, and that means the altruistic intention or aspiration to benefit all beings. And, um, you know, there was just kindness throughout the whole city. I, I ended up going to a small restaurant. I, I did not want to eat at any of the Chinese, um, you know, much of the city actually was, you know, managed by the Chinese. They'd taken over many of the Tibetan stores and small businesses. But our guide was Tibetan, and and he was really kind. We were able to only go to Tibetan restaurants or little coffee shops and that kind of thing, but there weren't many left. And um, I just saw this kindness in these people. And even though they're under this horrendous challenge, there was like this presencing with them. Uh, I had an experience where I decided to buy a small tanka. I had been walking the streets looking for something to call to me. And um, I found this little shop and I saw some of the tankas are very elaborate. It's just how their understanding of their devotional creativity toward these teachings. But I found a simple one and it was a green Tara. And I remember I went in and I said, well, could I buy, you know, maybe look at that one. And they said, well, the artist isn't here. You'll have to come back when he's here. So I made a plan to come back in an hour. They were going to call him and he came back and I had, and my translator and I were speaking with him and, um, you know, he, I said, I really liked your work, artwork. Could I possibly buy this? And, um, he, you know, gave me a price and I said, well, that's fine. And then they said, oh no, you should bargain. And I said, no, I'm not going to bargain. <laughs> so I, you know, but I was just so touched with his care of his own work. And, um, it was, a, this is a very simple piece of, you know, very, it was like a small painting. It was like, almost like a watercolor of uh, the green tar, which is just a symbol of Avalokiteshvara in a different der- derivation. Anyway, these were very, very positive experiences for me. And they, again, deepened my practice. And um, I'm probably talking quickly here to the more than I should be to spend my 25 minutes on this. But um, I just want to say that all of it helped me keep my practice alive. You know, the death, the grieving, the getting on my feet, the um, turning back to Zen Buddhism, and then to really try to practice it. As I, um, my Sangha had closed. And when I returned to Bit- Pittsburgh, I said, I'm just going to check out this Tibetan stuff. So I found a local uh, lineage in our my community, which was um, Drykung Gagyu. There's many lineages in Tibetan, but this particular Lama was teaching on the Abhidharma, and so I was able to study that with him for a couple of years. And I couldn't do, you know, they have a lot of visualizations. They have a very different practice than we do, 
but the intention is, you know, to benefit all human beings, right? It's just a different road. But I was so touched again by their welcoming of me. I didn't do all the practices, but they were, you know, they accepted me. And um, I don't know, there's great kindness, great inspiration everywhere. So I just wanted to say that my journey of exploring the world has totally supported my practice. I uh, has given me a lot of courage. Like I've made so many changes in my life, but I attri- attribute it to my Zen practice. Um, I'm much more consistent with it and I value it. I really value it. So I just wanted to end with something else. Um, I'm near my end. Maybe I'm talking too quickly, but maybe there's time for some questions or discussions. So I got really caught up in this word bodhicitta, you know, which is the altruistic intention to benefit all beings with directing your your kind of your intention toward Buddha. And um, I ended up to, with Hagetsu on Thursday, we're studying the Fukan Gazenge. And I asked her actually this last week, I said, is there any mention of compassion in, um, in any of the teachings? Because Dogen doesn't really mention that word. And I remember when I was, I mentioned, uh, Taigen mentioned, I was a student of uh, Shawaku and who obviously is a Dogen scholar. And I remember even asking him that question. And he said no to me. And it's been a real koan for me most of my life. But Hogetsu directed me to a book by Thomas Cleary called um, Minding Mind. And in it, they examine kind of these old teachings from China, really. You know, different teachers, Dogen wasn't the first one to create Fukang Gazenzi. You know, it was a, in a small effort by many, many different people over maybe 900 years. And this, there was this one monk, a Chinese monk, he's Chan Master, and I will do my best to pronounce it, C.I. Jiao of Chang Lu. And he was supposed to have been, you know, approximately about 100 years from Dogen. And he wrote a preference to Fukan Gazengi. And I'm going to read it to you. And this is what he said. Those who aspire to enlightenment and who would learn wisdom should first arouse an attitude of great compassion and make an all-encompassing vow to master concentration, promising to liberate other people, not seeking liberation for your own self alone. Then and only then should you let go of all objects and put to rest all concerns so that body and mind are one suchness and there is no gap between movement and stillness. So I found this so, you know, I was really blessed. I felt really blessed to have talked with Hogetsu and then to have read this, this about CIGL. And um, again, it just shows you there's such generosity in our world as one tries to write their first Dharma talk. So, um, you know, I just wanted to mention that. And I decided to end on a light note. So I, because I felt it was, you know, you, there's Dharma teachings everywhere in our lives. So um, I want to share a story. I often drive my six-year-old grandson to his speech class. And in order to make it fun, I will raise and lower his window in the car to keep him busy. We kind of have a game going. And when he, when we play this game, he always says to me, take out your batteries. Like, you know, kind of, it's his way of saying, leave me alone or something, you know? And so I now use his words. I decided to use his words when I go to sit down for Zazen. Because for me, taking out your batteries is dropping body and mind. And so I just wanted to share that. Um, And finally, I'm going to pause a minute. You know, my talk was, how do we keep practice alive? Or, you know, what is that question about? And so that was my question to you tonight. What what experiences in your life have you keeps your practice alive? 
Is there something you aspire to that would keep your practice alive? Or how do you approach that question? Because I think it's a very alive question. So that I think I'm going to end if it's not too early. I think I'm, how long did I talk? Did anyone notice? About the right amount of time? Oh, good. Perfect. So I just thank all of you. And I'm really great to be with you in the Sangha. And um, just thank you so much for listening to me. So thank you. Thank you so much, Deborah, um, for sharing some of your story. And um, yeah, I, I just, well, bodhicitta is a way of talking about what brought all of us here, some intention to try and be helpful, really, as you said. And um, so I, I think the differences between Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism are, you know, the trappings are different, but, you know, the the, the heart is the same. Uh, so what what brought us to practice all the, you know, everything. What keeps, what, and I, I like your topic because it's what keeps us, keeps bringing us to practice. So seeing the suffering in our own hearts and minds and seeing the suffering, you know, everything that's going on in the world, um, you know, is this question, how do we, how do we help? How do we take care? How do we, how do we take care of ourselves and each other? And so anyway, I, I uh, appreciated your stories of practicing in Asia um, and just the kindness of people. Uh, that was my experience uh, living in Japan for a while, visited uh, China with you and, and a couple of other times and, and uh, Thailand. And I know some other people here have visited Asia, uh, but seeing people practice, uh, whether actually, whether it's in Asia or, or all the different centers you've practiced in, in this country, we support each other. So uh, compassion is very much part of Zen. <laughs> it's, and it's, it's, it's spoken of maybe not with that word, but it's very much there. So anyway, thank you very much for your talk. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. So no one, no, no comments or questions, whatever. <laughs> okay. Just checking back in. I just thought I'd ask. Oh, okay. I'll just call it out. Um, so, Deborah, it's Asian over in the corner, and um, I really, really appreciated your talk. And I thought it's it's so sincere. Your practice shines through, and it's and and it's so sincere. And what I heard though in your talk about keeping practice alive is that sometimes you can do it, and sometimes you can do it for others, and other times in life. Others do it for you, you know, we're, we we keep practice alive for each other and we make our best effort, but we're, we're not, you know, superhuman beings, we're human beings. And um, I wish that I trusted more that, you know, sometimes I can fall and others will keep practice alive for me. Um, but, but that's what I heard. And I wondered if that resonated with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I totally feel that. I feel it's all interconnected, you know. Um, I feel it's really, really, it's one of the things I really believe. It's really interconnected. I experienced it myself. And um, it's, you know, sometimes our our mind can't even really see how interconnected it is. Like when you're grieving, for example, but you're still being supported. So, yeah, thank you for hearing me. Well, thanks for having the courage to give a Dharma talk. Yeah, 
Well, otherwise, we wouldn't be benefiting from this. <laughs> oh, no, it's it was a riot because I had actually created this topic and then I, it kept changing, you know, I, and then I, well, you've been not knowing, just keep not knowing, it'll come together and it finally did. So <laughs> it's a great practice. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So long. Uh, it, 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 it feels to me that uh, the, the way you, oh, sorry. Uh, it feels to me that the way you, you mentioned that, you know, uh, different roads eventually have the same purpose in different interpretations of practice um, is the same way with, with the suffering and the kindness born out of that. Um, it doesn't matter if it's the personal suffering that brings out the kindness and a different road to to, to the purpose, and it doesn't matter if it's uh, a people's suffering, like the one that, that collectively um, afflicts Tibet, and, and there is still kindness born out of that. And it wasn't immediately clear to me, but um, thank you for sharing that connection, because it does remind me that, you know, um, whatever the power of everybody together or personal um, there is that unshakable certainty that it seems you have found that is, is, is for everybody and also for you and also for us. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. May I ask, can I just ask who that was? Because I don't know that person. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm very new. <laughs> My oh, name thanks. is Onen. Onen? Thank you, Onen. Simone. Simone. Oh, Simone. I'm sorry. You know, I can only see the Zoom people right now. So thank you, Simone. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's fascinating. Um, it's fascinating. And I, you know, I just think it's really wonderful to see, you know, compassion and joy expressed throughout the world in whatever context. It's very powerful. I can, sh- anyway, I won't go on. <laughs> I have another story that happened just locally in Oakland, California this last week about someone doing this. It's just blows you away. Just blows you away. So. Please tell the story, Deborah. Oh, can I tell you? Okay. This is a very heart-wrenching story. There was a woman, um, I only read about her in the newspaper, like on my digital news. And um, there was a woman named Angel, and I don't know her last name. And she actually grew up in Ohio. And she was kind of, she was very strong in her beliefs. And apparently she was very open-minded regarding gender, human rights, um, prison rights. And she ended up in kind of Oakland over the years. And, and after many different types of jobs, she ended up running a bakery. And she was very much loved. This bakery was very much loved in the community. She was always very fair in her pricing. She would give stuff away at the end of the day if she could. And she was going, she was at a bank last week. And um, she was uh, had just gone into the bank and had gotten into her car and locked the car. Two men came up and smashed in her window and grabbed her purse. She went after them and... Um, I'm going to cry. I'm sorry. So she went after them and some part of her coat got caught in the car and she ended up getting dragged 50 feet and obviously very, very badly injured. And um, they took her off life support like three days later. But what came out of it was that um, she had become, she, so all like her family, the workers, her significant other all said that they did not want to prosecute the perpetrators of this crime, that she believed she did not believe in the penal system and she felt that any punishment or arrest or whatever would not benefit them. And they are asking the police not to go after these 
these two people. And I just, it's just one of the hardest stories I've ever read. It's such an advanced uh, understanding of bodhicitta in my opinion. So I just wanted to share. It's a true story. I, if someone needs, um, I can put my email in the chat. I can email you the story. You can read it in a more logical way, maybe than I communicated it. But um, that she had enough of an example that even those that knew her are trying to, you know, support her wishes after her passing. So I just wanted to share that story. It's a really powerful story. Thank you. You know, it's like turn the other cheek and all the Buddha stories where he, you know, sacrifice, you know, all the Buddhas would sacrifice themselves to feed an animal or it's like hard to understand that kind of, it's hard to understand. So thank you. Deborah, Deborah, thank you very much. It's Hogatsu. Thank you for your beautiful talk. Um, I was thinking about what has moved me, and often there are images, not unlike your image of people prostrating themselves in uh, Lhasa, but I've often been inspired by the image of uh, Sumedha, and Deepankara Buddha, you know, in a former life, the Buddha took his hair down and covered the ground so that Deepankara Buddha could walk without soiling his feet. And there was just such this natural giving uh, with really out, without trying to gain something, but just wholehearted and a, a spark of bodhicitta, you know. So I think that... Um, these images and stories and others inspiring us always to find something in ourselves, you know, when that resonates, that gives us this, a different kind of battery power, maybe <laughs> a different kind of energy. So I just uh, wanted to share that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hogetsu. Yeah. No, there are examples. It, it you know, just amazing in our world. So I don't want to stay too long. You let me know the time limit on this evening, please. Cause I'm on a different time. zone. So I don't know if there's more comments. I saw Kathy's hand. I think she Kathy had a hand. Yeah. At your talk uh, very much. And uh, I've, I'm still getting to know you and I feel like you, you told us a lot about yourself tonight, you know, it's very intimate, uh, you know, and it made me think about, okay, why do I practice? Uh, you know, um, and why do I continue to practice? Uh, and your story was compelling. You really turned to the practice when you were in pain um, and uh, delved deeper. And so I think I find it useful. Uh, I think for me, sometimes it's a search for meaning. Um and uh, fits with what makes sense to me uh, in terms of uh, meaning in life. But um, anyway, I just wanted to thank you for that. Thank you so much, Kathy, for sharing how you felt about that. Yeah, I I was surprised and sustained me, to be honest. I mean, I I had nothing left, so it worked. (laughs) Help me. Douglas has a comment. Yeah. Uh, Deborah, thank you for your question about what it is that sustains our 
our practice and keeps us going because it can be challenging. It can be hard sometimes. And I've found that just the fact that we practice together, uh, both in person at the Zendo and online, and that um, this is a practice we do together. And, and it's a recognition of the connection we have. And I find it really inspiring the way so many people, including you, have worked to support the Sangha, to work for each other. And that's fantastic. Um, and I also find the practice of zazen itself inspiring. We sit there and, you know, let the thoughts go, let the thoughts go, step back from our thinking, and we step into this um, more open space. And, you know, in Fukan Zazengi, Dogen has a great image that the zazen is, it's like when the tiger's roaming the mountain and the dragon returns to the water. So it's like when we sit zazen, we come home to this open, boundaryless, free space. And I find that very inspiring. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But just remember, there can be tigers in the forest. <laughs> well, but we are tigers in the forest. <laughs> yeah, the tigers. Yeah, we can be the We're tigers. We're the tigers, yeah. I never thought of that. Thank you. <laughs> I guess one last thing I would like to say is, Deborah, I found it very moving and also interesting to me actually how from so far away and being virtual how well you've blended into our sangha with your presence and your practice so i'm grateful for that and i just find it you know very interesting too yeah yeah thank you so much Ogetsu. yeah it is it is interesting yeah i feel a very strong bond with your sangha i and i it is you would think it wouldn't be real but it, for me it's real but I did go, you know, I have been to the old Sangha when it was on Irving Park Road. And um, I don't know, it's, it's, again, we don't understand everything. So it's just the way it is. So thank you. I think we're all getting more skillful at doing it. <laughs> Honestly, as time passes, it seems more real is the word she used. So I agree with you. My cat's part of my sangha. (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) She decided to join the Dharma talk. (laughs) What's her name, Deborah? Uh, Nua. Nua? Yeah, it's actually Gaelic. Mm-hmm. I, I, she's a rescue cat. I just she actually just came to my house in Pittsburgh for a few months, and then I kind of let her in the house, and she just stayed. This is a pretty natural adoption here. So she was drawn to the practice. <laughs> well, I don't know. She helps me a great deal. She's a great friend. So. Mm-hmm.